0: Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review. Later on, we'll have Sean Newkirk and Craig Brown on to talk about how bad are the Royals really and what are we looking for in the second half of the season. Well, joining me today is Burke Granger. He covers college baseball in the draft and draft prospects for 2080 baseball and D1 baseball. You can also follow him on Twitter at Burke Granger. That's B-U-R-K-E-G-R-A-N-G-E-R. Burke, thanks uh, thanks so much for being on the show today.
1: Of course, Max. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, the Royals wrapped up their draft earlier this month, and there was not, not a real big surprise in who they took, I think, or how the draft kind of laid out, at least for the first couple of picks. The Orioles took Adley Rushman, of course, at number one, and the Royals took Bobby Witt Jr. at number two. You've gotten to see Witt quite a bit in your travels. You know, was that, was that definitely the right pick for the Royals, and what kind of player do you expect Bobby Witt to be going forward as a professional?
1: Yeah, for me, it was the right pick. We've had Bobby Witt Jr. ranked as the second best player uh, throughout most of this, this draft cycle. So he's been regarded as the top high school guy in this draft class for years now, and that usually doesn't happen. So spending so much time in the spotlight usually causes people to find flaws or, or simply other players just kind of catch up. Um, but as the son of the major, uh, major leaguer like Bobby Witt is, obviously – the pressure of that situation didn't appear to phase him. Now, now, that doesn't mean he didn't have his detractors or his doubters over, over this draft cycle, but he silenced most of them uh, just with consistent incremental improvement. Uh, now, I was lucky enough to see Bobby Witt play like 12 games over five different events uh, over the last couple years, uh, which is probably more than I've seen any other player. Uh, in last year's draft class, so I feel like I have a good sense of the type of player that he's going to be, but also the type of kid he is and the intangibles he brings to the ballpark. Um, I wish I could see every draft prospect like for 50 plate appearances, but that that would make my job a lot easier. But it just doesn't work that way. Um, now the reason I saw him so much is because although he was a member of the 2019 class, he he participated in several events. With the 2018 class, the summer before their draft, um, and he more than held his own. So much much is made about his age relative to the 2019 class. He just turned 19 uh, right after the draft, so he's old compared to his high school peers. But I think he would have been a top 10 pick in the 2018 draft if he were eligible, uh, because the tools are just so loud. Um, for me, it's plus raw power at the plate. Um, it's usually to the pool side. Uh, there are, and he gets to it in games. A lot of people show plus power in batting practice. Bobby gets it, gets to it in games. Um, saw him almost leave the park altogether at Wrigley field at the underarm all American game last summer. Um, put one within 10 feet of, of Waveland Avenue. Um, he can use the whole field, uh, but he's primarily at a pool that, that I've seen with the power. Uh, he's got quick hands, good plate coverage. The hit tool I think is going to be average. Um, he can get a little too aggressive at times, chasing pitches outside the zone. And I, I think he sometimes struggles when he's trying to do too much. I would like to see him take take more of what's given to him a little more. Um, but it's hard for kids to take walks in these showcase events. They want to show showcase their talents. Um, now, there were times over the past year that you'd see – See wit and all of his tools, and he could frustrate you with an underwhelming performance at the plate, like he'd swing through some hittable pitches or, or not routinely square up like an 84-mile-per-hour fastball down the middle. Uh, but I think he correctly and, – and I think he was correctly critiqued for that. But uh, in the fall in Jupiter and then towards the winter when I saw him at, for the last time with, with the USA 18-and-under team – he was a little more dialed in at the plate uh, and had more feel for the barrel. Uh, he hit nearly 600 for USA and slugged over a thousand um, in their trip in Panama as as they won the World Cup. And then he carried that momentum into the spring. Had a really good spring. Was a, a Golden Spikes Award final uh, semifinalist, uh, which is pretty rare for a high school kid. Those are it's typically reserved for for college talent. Um, he's a plus runner. I've had him consistently between four one and four two down the line uh which which is like a 60 65 runner um on my experience his speed is best used underway rather than in like quick bursts so i haven't seen him use that speed to steal bases very often in my viewings but i do think it could be part of his game going forward Uh, with a glove he's just more one of one of the more fluid defenders that i've seen at the shortstop spot amongst high school high school kids um it's not easy for for people to stick at shortstop and i I see a lot of guys at the high school level that will eventually need to move off the position, and I don't think that'll be the case with with Witt. He's very fluid, very athletic, Uh, the footwork is sound, he has his quick hands, they're soft hands, uh, and he has good range to either side. Uh, And this is perhaps where being the son of a big leaguer helps most is his instincts. He's very instinctual, can't necessarily be taught, uh, but it sure as hell can be learned by being around the game as much as he has um he's often in the right place at the right time and, and by the way when he does field the ball he has enough arm to make a make the throw from anywhere in the infield his, his future is obviously not on the mound but i've seen him pitch and, and just casually sit like 92 to 94 so with that kind of deep set of tools it's easy to see why he was the second pick in the draft um we had him ranked uh second behind retchman so obviously we think it was the right choice with retchman off the board um Signed for a full slot, which is a lot of money at that spot. But you know, if if I were a Royals fan, I'd be pretty pretty stoked to have him in your in your system right now.
0: Yeah, he seems like kind of the high end talent that their farm system really lacks right now. And so, uh, I think it's yeah, I think I think it's it's really good to get that kind of complete ball player. And you mentioned the intangibles. I'm sure the Royals, you know, they seem to be a franchise that's still. Uh, weighs that very heavily and so i think they were pre- very pleased to get him number two you know it's interesting you know he has a shortstop and you, you talk about him sticking at shortstop and of course a lot of the fans saw the royals draft a shortstop with the number two pick and they ask well wait a minute we've got Adiberto monosey at shortstop he's early in his career and of course right. in baseball you don't want to draft based on major league needs since you don't know you know it's going to be probably two or three, maybe even four years before Witt is get at the big league level. You don't know what your needs are going to be at that point. But let's say that Monacy, you know, is here long term, like we think he will be and Witt, gets here relatively quickly, say in three years, four years maybe. What position do you, do you see Witt maybe fitting the best at? Is there a position that you think, um, you know, if he was moved off shortstop, that he would slot in very nicely? Or maybe you see the guy that m- pushes Monacy to another position?
1: I, I could see him slotting in at, at second or third pretty easily. Um, you, you're correct. You, you don't draft for need. Uh, you draft the best player unavailable. That was wit. You know, a couple years ago, Alex Bregman was the best player available for the Astros. Uh, he was a shortstop at LSU, and they had Carlos Correa in the, as a mainstay at shortstop for him but they, they took the best player available and then when they had an opening at third base Bregman stepped in there um Cody Bellinger we see playing a lot of outfield not a position he played at all as, as an amateur um you just draft the best player available and today with today's defensive metrics um and the way teams are are shifting uh the you don't need to have as much range in whatever defensive position you put right. people in at the major league level. You can, you can pretty much take your nine best hitters and find a home for them defensively. It's, it's not kind of, I, I'm a little more old school. I love, I love a, a great flashy defensive play, but you can't argue with the data. And if the data makes people in the right place at the right time more often, so be it. So, in that respect, um, it's good to have a guy like Witt in the system. And then I, he's he, in particular, is athletic enough that I think he could handle um, either second or third, as I mentioned, or or an outfield position if needed, um, if, if you want to keep Mondesi at shortstop.
0: And it seems like his bat would would play at third base, too. I mean, it seems like he has the kind of power bat that could still get you 15, 20 home runs that you traditionally get from that power corner infield spot. And people, yeah, people, if Royals fans should remember, that we, we drafted Mike Mustakis at third base when we already had I guess he was a shortstop back then, but we knew he was going to move to third, and we right. already had Alex Gordon in the system, and somehow that worked out all right with Gordon moving to left field. So, with these athletes, especially a guy like Witt, these you know usually it's a lot easier for a shortstop to move all over the all over the field uh, rather than moving you know some guy moving to shortstop.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a great example. You know, Gordon never played left field at Nebraska, uh, but then turns into a Gold Glove caliber left fielder in the in the pros. So, um, you just draft athletes, you load your system with. With options and the best possible options and then uh, you go from there and that's how <laughs> that's how you win championships obviously
0: well and the royals went with another shortstop interestingly with their next pick in the 44th overall pick uh florida shortstop brady mcconnell uh he's kind of an interesting guy he was a draft eligible sophomore uh what can you tell us about mcconnell what you kind of expect from him
1: yeah so we liked him a lot um a couple years ago, my, myself and Nick Valeris, uh, my partner in Wisconsin, he 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 and I covered the draft for 2080 baseball. We liked him uh, two years ago uh, out of Merritt Island in Florida, uh, put a second round grade on him. But he struggled a bit as a senior. Uh, and between that and his commitment to Florida, he slid to the 33rd round and the Reds took a chance on him. Uh, as expected, he went to school knowing he'd be a draft eligible sophomore. I didn't get another shot at this two years later. Uh, we, as, we assumed he'd be an instant contributor in Gainesville. And he, he was their opening day shortstop as a freshman, but didn't play much that season, battled some injuries. And then when he did play, he wasn't all that effective, uh, but he did just big things as a sophomore this year. He, he slashed 344, 397, 604 with 15 home runs. And perhaps the most interesting part of his season statistically is that 11 of his 15 home runs came in SEC play. Um, compare that with a guy like Cam Meisner out of Missouri who who looked like a top 10 pick for the first month of the season. And then he really struggled in SEC play and he slid all the way to the competitive balance round. Um, so what I like about McConnell is he, he's tall and athletic. He's 6'3", 195, and he's strong. He's wiry strong for that frame. Um, he runs well. He, we had several sub-four second times uh, home home to first times when he was in high school, which is top-of-the-scale speed. Uh, I can't speak to whether or not he maintained that at Gainesville. Saw him, saw him once as a freshman and then again in this fall, but he didn't steal many bags in college. Um, he hit for power in the SEC uh, like we talked about, but he doesn't have a track record with wood bats because he didn't play in the Cape last year. Um and, and we had 2080 baseball, we look at that as a pretty key data point when projecting how well how much impact a guy's gonna have with the bat at the professional level. Now, it doesn't mean he he won't. It just means it's an unknown because we haven't seen that track record with wood yet. Uh he hit for average, um, average raw power when I saw him in batting practice. Uh and he like wit, gets to it in games. Um Thanks primarily to to plus bat speed. Now, there is some swing and miss as part of his game, and I think he can improve on his strike zone awareness and pitch recognition. Uh, but he's pretty dangerous right now against fastballs. Um, defensively, I think he's adequate at shortstop. Not quite as good as I thought he would be when I saw him in, in high school. Uh, so I'm not sure if he sticks there long term. But I, I should say I'm confident that um, – He's athletic enough to handle center field. I think that's his ultimate future home or third base where if he slides over there in third base, he's got enough arm. It's a, it's an average arm at third. Um, and with the added power that we've seen from him this, the spring he could profile well at a corner. Uh, now they had as a draft eligible sophomore, they had to, the Royals had to go about a half million dollars over slot to get him, which isn't surprising because he had that added leverage as a draft eligible sophomore, uh, but if he returned and had similar success, uh, he probably would have been a first rounder next year. So, and would have commanded more money than what than what he signed for. So, I, I wouldn't mind this overspend if I were a Royals fan.
0: It's a, I wanted to talk about slotting a little bit. I, we had a little discussion about. Um, I think some of us were a little surprised that Witt got full slot, uh, and that you know the Royals came into this with a draft bonus pool, the third largest draft bonus pool in the majors. So that perhaps gave them some flexibility if maybe they wanted to pursue someone that slid in the draft. Do you think that's something that they could have done or with the number two pick is it pretty risky to try to mess around and try to sign a guy under slot to get, you know, to save that draft saving somewhere else in the draft?
1: I do think it's risky. It's, it's something I was expecting as well. I, I don't think I was expecting a full slot for the second overall pick and almost $8 million. Um, so I did expect, you know, I, I, I did expect a move like this to get make a play for McConnell, knowing you need to go over slot for him in the second. Mm-hmm. But then in their next two picks, they they picked kind of moderate ceiling uh, junior college pitchers like they did with their first what eight picks last year. Like just kind of returned to the old school modus operandi of this this Royals scouting department. Um, which isn't a bad thing. I, I really like their draft that they had last year. But um, I guess when they when they started picking the college pitchers again or, or the I think their next two picks were were Midwest college high sc- uh, college hitters, you kind of you kind of figured those wouldn't be over slot. So they're going to give that money to wit um, before the draft. If you would ask me, I would have said, yeah, I would expect wit to go a little bit un- or whoever gets picked at the number two spot to go a little bit under under slot. Uh, to allow them to make a little bit bigger splash with their second and third picks, but you know they they did it at two, and they they and then it kind of stopped after that.
0: Yeah, I think it, it seemed like, but maybe they were just more interested in getting the guy they wanted, not messing around. I know the Mets it seemed like tried to, you know, game it so that they could get. I think Matthew Allen was a, the guy that slid uh, out of the first round, and that's a guy they wanted to kind of overpay for, but just kind of interesting the Royals. Didn't do that. And, and, and they've done it in the past. And, and, and you know, maybe this year they just figured, you know, Bobby, what's the guy we want? We don't want to mess around. They they signed him quickly and he's, you know, probably going to be, begin his professional career, for, you know, in the next couple of days. So, uh, you know, can't really fault him for that if he turns if he pans out. Um, just what are your general impressions on this draft class? You know, there was, like you said, when kind of college heavy in the draft, particularly with college arms, kind of the same strategy they did last year. But what's your overall sense and where the strengths and weaknesses lie in this draft and, and where it compares kind of relative to recent drafts.
1: So the, the only real surprise, at least in the, the, the start of the drafts, was that there were a lack of surprises. Um, there wasn't a Kyler Murray going ninth overall, like, like there was last year that kind of threw things off. Uh, now a lot of, a lot of prognosticators nailed the, the first eight, eight to 11 picks in their like mock drafts. Um, and this draft was a little bit unusual compared to the last several um, and and how I think the 2020 class will shape up. Because the top two guys in this class, Rutschman and Witt, have remained the top two guys in the in the draft for an entire year. If, if you would have talked to me last year uh, in about the 2019 class, they would have been the first two names that I mentioned. And, and I'm not unique. Every, everyone had them as kind of the top high school and top college guys, it's just kind of rare that they stuck there. Um, And because that just usually doesn't happen. Uh, Additionally, this, this class was talked about as not being as deep as last year's. And I think that's true. Uh, But those top two guys at, at the top rank about as good of a one, two punch as there's been in the last 10 or so years in terms of how highly they were regarded pre-draft. Now, obviously they could struggle in, in pro ball, but, Uh, using just that snapshot in time those those two were pretty highly regarded the likes of like Harper and Machado in like 2010 uh so this year's draft class was light on college pitching again that's something we knew coming in uh to the draft cycle there wasn't a Casey Mize or Brady Singer um when we started like stacking up this class um after last summer, the consensus top college pitcher was Graham Stinson out of Duke, and he was transitioning at that time from the pen to the rotation, so he already had that question mark around him. Um, and when he did transition in the spring, the stuff was down, uh, and he was shut down with what's reported as a hamstring injury, and he slid all the way to the fourth round. So some guys did emerge that I liked a lot over the spring. Nick, Nick was a second-rounder out of high school and did okay. Uh, he was good, but not great his first two years at TCU. But this year he really emerged as the guy we kind of thought he could be. He goes seventh overall to the Reds. Um, but that's late comparatively to have the first arm, high school or college, being picked seventh overall uh, compared to previous drafts. Um, Alec Manoa followed that up at 11 to Toronto. He's a big 6'6", 260-pound righty from WBU. I, I liked him a lot, saw him twice. Um I think there are three usable pitches that play. Uh, he commanded them all in both times that I saw him. But I think there's some reliever risk. There's there's not many guys his size. Pitching in the majors um, It's just that kind of an unusual profile. Uh, the mechanics are really, really simple. He's had some command issues in the past, although I really like the strides he took this year. And then Jackson Rutledge was the top juco arm out of, out of San Jack in, in Houston. Liked him a lot too when I saw him. He can run his fastball up to ninety nine. Uh, slider and curveball both play. Uh, the slider's a real wipeout pitch. Um, like, like Manoa, he's just a real. Bi- he's a bigger guy. He's he's thinner. He's six eight, about the same weight. Um, and he doesn't command it very well. At least at least in my viewings. And and he had the same problem last year when he was at the University of Arkansas before he transferred. Um, so college pitching was down a little bit. Safe for those guys, and, and there were still Zach Thompson out of Kentucky. He went 19th to the Cardinals. George Kirby out of Elon, like those guys. Um, Seth Johnson went a little later to to the Rays. I like them, like them all, but. In terms of college pitching, it was a down year compared to what we've seen in years past and compared to what we'll see next year. If there was a strength in the draft, it was it was shortstop. So starting with Witt, there were nine shortstops taken in the first round split pretty equally amongst high school and college guys. Um, and then another 10 shortstops taken in round two. Now, as I, as I mentioned, it's hard to stick it short, and not all those guys will stay there. Um, but I think in five years when we look back at this draft and we're trying to find... Who within the draft turn into like solid everyday major leaguers? I think shortstop is the position that we'll see the most of those guys.
0: Well let's look ahead to the twenty twenty class. It looks like the Royals are going to be drafting pretty high, probably one of the top three picks, if not number one, the way they're going, uh unfortunately. But uh, you know, this is give them a chance to add another high end talent to the farm system. What are some names you're kind of hearing that are going to be at the top of next year's draft? You know, last year we were already hearing names like Bobby Witt Jr. and Adley Rutschman. Who do you think is going to be at the top of next year's draft?
1: Yeah. So, so and the way this works in evaluating talent for the draft, um, there's not a lot of rest between draft cycles. So the draft happened, this first week of June and then the very next week I was in Phoenix, Arizona for five days to watch the the perfect game national showcase, which is like the first high school showcase to kick off that draft cycle in this high school class. I, and I knew it coming in because I had seen them at some previous events again when when some of their best guys were playing up a level um, this stack this class is stacked so. Uh, one of the, one of the guys that impressed me most was Jared Kelly, uh, a right hander out of, out of te- Texas. Uh, he was, a he just, he sits 94 to 98, at least in short outings. Uh, and it's some of the easiest velocity you'll see from a right handed a pitcher from a high school pitcher. Um, secondary stuff needed some work. Uh, the command needed some work. Now all these high school guys have, have below average present command. Um, but he, he did flash some changeups that I see as a, a future plus pitch. Um, like that a lot Pete crow armstrong it might be the top the most highly regarded high school guy uh an outfielder out of harvard westlake in, in california same same high school as like uh lucas giolito from a, a, a couple years ago uh he he's a really good hitter, left-handed hitter um a guy who you know just just like i talked about with the stops and you can see a guy and it's rare that you can that you know he's going to be able to play up the middle uh, Pete Crow Armstrong, I'm confident will be able to play at the middle and play shortstop at the next level. Er, sorry, play center field at the next level, um, and then from a speed, uh, he profiles as like a top of the order hitter. I don't think there's going to be a ton of power, but love the left-handed stroke, love the the damage that he can do on the base pass. Uh, lastly, at the high school level, one of the guys that impressed me the most was Drew Romo. He's a is a switch hitting catcher. Uh, high school catching was down this year in the 2019 draft. Uh, Drew Romo, in my mind, would have been the top high school catcher in this draft if he were eligible. He he was the catcher on the USA Baseball 18 and under team ahead of the, any of those guys in that 2019 class. So he's a 2020 guy, switch hitting catcher. Had some pop, had a pop time in the workout of 1.74. Uh, now you see some outlandish pop times and workouts, but that was the best at the at the at the event. And then he did pop uh, a couple times. In game action in the 191 to195 range uh, just a very quick release it's not the not the strongest arm but it's very quick feet and a quick exchange behind the plate and like I said a switch hitter you can provide a lot of value and then the the college at the college pitching level you have Cole Wilcox and and JT again who were first round guys just last year and now they're going to be draft eligible sophomores and, and likely first round guys this next year. Uh, and Emerson Hancock at Georgia uh, is probably the top guy heading into next year. We'll see how he does over the summer, uh, but he's a righty who can run it up to 99. And then from the bats, we have like Spencer Torkelson out of out of Arizona State. Just a lot of big raw power, right-handed power. Uh, doesn't have much of a defensive position at the plate, but when there's so much value tied up in that bat, as we saw from a guy like Andrew Vaughn who goes third overall in this draft. Um, the bat, can, the bat can carry you, especially when you're in draft rooms and your job is dependent on getting these guys to the major leagues quick. Uh, college bats have a pretty good track record, and Spencer Torkelson would fit that mold. Um, uh, just a few other guys, Austin Martin, the, the – uh, third baseman second baseman out of Vanderbilt uh he led the sec and hitting with hit like 414 and is currently playing really well in Omaha for Vanderbilt and then Casey Martin the shortstop out of Arkansas is another another guy I like quite a bit uh a guy who again can just help you out on both sides of the both sides of the ball offensively and defensively so this class is, is a lot to get excited for it and it takes a good class to get me excited uh to get those batteries charged just one week after the previous draft when there's a lot of sleepless nights and you're preparing for the draft and then you got to do it all over again for the for the 2020 class so i've been eyeing this 2020 class as something to kind of energize me cuz we all get sick of writing about the same guys <laughs> year year round for 2019 so i was looking forward to turning the calendar and and writing about this class
0: well and we're sick of losing all these baseball games but at least the one reward for losing all these games is the royals We'll get to select very high in what should be, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty good draft class. So at least Royals fans have that to look forward to. And we'll have to have you on again sometime, I think, to talk maybe closer to that draft to talk about that class and how that draft is shaping up. In the meantime, if if Royals fans do want to kind of keep track of what's going on with draft prospects, where can they find your writing?
1: Uh, for draft prospects, it's, it's 2080baseball.com. We, we're already working on our 2020 uh, draft content. And then if you want to look at videos of a lot of the guys, videos or write-ups on a lot of the guys that you that the Royals drafted in 2019, you'll find those on the site. And then I cover the Midwest for d1baseball.com. So we'll just wrapping up my first season there, and, and hopefully we'll be kicking things off again in the, in the fall. So looking forward to that.
0: Well, Burke Granger, thanks so much for being on the show, and uh, we'll have to have you on, uh, on again at some time.
1: Thank you so much, Max. All
0: right, we're back, and uh, joining me now is, as always, is our pair of all-star riders. Uh, as usual, joining me is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing tonight?
2: Max, I'm ready to represent Royals Review in Cleveland.
0: <laughs> hey, I got to ask you, what do you uh, what do you think of uh, baseball in England? I mean, that uh, we really showed those Brits a thing or two with, with our yeah. uh, national pastime.
2: You know, I mean, not to – I don't know if I'm going to be like a social justice warrior here, but like uh, I really could have done without the patronizing of English folks because like when they went around and asked them, oh, what's a foul ball mean? Look at these (laughs) stupid British people that don't know what this means. It's like, well, you know, if you ask me about, uh, you know, like cricket or um, any – I know soccer, but if you ask me about some sport I never watch, I would have no idea of anything about it. So I could have done without that. But uh, you know, 500 runs in two games sure is uh, sure is exactly what Manfred probably didn't want.
0: So yeah, apparently, if you put a game in a in a tiny bandbox of a soccer stadium, it, uh, it's going to lead to a lot of home runs. So yeah, we we really uh, gave the the Brits a great demonstration of our sport. Yeah,
2: to, and someone had mentioned. Um, that the – that uh, not – it's Olympic Stadium or London Stadium, whatever it's called now, um, that it was built for, like, track, for, like, racing, um, and so – or track and field. And so that was the reason. It was basically Coors Field but with um, Yankee Stadium dimensions um, because of the way that the stadium is built um, from, like, an air flow standpoint. And so, like, that's the reason why. Just ridiculous park factors, basically, which makes sense, but it was just – looking back on it's like yeah maybe we shouldn't have played coors field at yankee stadium basically
0: (laughs) well also joining us tonight and i believe for the first time on the podcast is craig brown he's a contributor on our side as well as baseball prospectus and was the editor-in-chief of baseball prospectus kansas city craig thanks so much for being on the show tonight
3: hey max thanks for having me on hey sean
0: hi well you know uh we, we bring you on because uh brad boxberger i know he's a big you know everyone is a big fan of brad boxberger's and Unfortunately, the Brad Burks, Boxberger era came to a close last week. The Royals let him go after a 5.4, 5.40 ERA in 26 and two-thirds innings. He had 27 strikeouts, but also was walking 5.7 per nine innings. The Royals signed him to a one-year, $2.2 million deal last year, kind of hoping, I think, to uh, you know get some use out of him as a late-inning reliever, maybe flip him at the July deadline. But he doesn't even make it on the team till that long. Uh, the Royals letting him go uh, at the end of June. Was this maybe a little bit surprising, Craig? I mean, he was pitching a little bit better recently, at least, uh, you know, giving up three runs in his last nine innings. Uh, but was, was this just a move that maybe they, the Royals kind of had their hand forced at some point?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, Max, uh, I'm very touched and honored that when the Royals cut Brad Voxberger, you thought of me. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I don't really know, you know, where to go after that. But, yeah, I, I, I was surprised, I mean. I, I, on Twitter, I think that I was kind of thinking that they would do kind of a, you know, a, maybe a, a low-level minor league arm that's on the 40-man roster. Um, or, you know, they could have, um, you know, gone a couple other directions, you know, with like a, even a Terrence Gore. Um, so I, I was a little bit surprised that it was Boxberger. But, you know, I mean, looking at it, he had pitched better of late overall, though. The walks were just killing him. Uh, he was just putting runners on base, you know, left and right. Um, it was just a guy, you know, I think that the Royals brought him in is kind of like, you know, one of those, Hey, we've built a a good bullpen before. So, you know, let's see what we can do. You know, this guy's a guy that's had a track record of success and, and, you know, obviously they were, I would imagine the, the phone calls are kind of starting around this point. Teams are kind of you know kicking tires on, on other guys' players, especially for teams like the Royals that are going to probably trade one or two guys, maybe more uh, at the upcoming deadline. And there's there was probably just absolutely nothing out there uh, as far as chatter about Boxberger. They probably knew that they weren't going to be able to flip him for anything. And so they just decided to, to walk away at, at this
0: moment. Yeah, and I think it's, some of this was a consequence of their forty-man roster, Sean. And I think, it's, I guess, if you want to be encouraged a little bit, it's that instead of like letting go a twenty-three-year-old, uh, you know, Arnoldo Hernandez or Connor Green, who's, you know, struggled in Double A and is on the forty-man roster, but um, you know they're still young enough to maybe turn things around. Instead, they kind of cut bait with a thirty-one-year-old Brad, yeah. Brad Boxberger. <laughs> um you know is, is this is this going to be a point where there was at a point where that we we're going to start seeing some more moves like that because there, there are certainly guys on the roster who are, certainly aren't part of the future and and we're not getting a chance to look at some of the younger guys like maybe Richard Lovelady or maybe some other guys that aren't in the 40-man roster right now um are we going to start seeing a, a, like a little more roster turn in the next couple of weeks here?
2: Yeah, you would think so, and like with Deek. So when Deekman, I think it was Deekman, yeah, yeah. Um, when Deekman coughed up a lead, um, everybody was. I just remember thinking, like, man, we've got other people on this team that aren't thirty-two years old. That you know are good lefties, or you would think Love Lady at least has a chance to be better than what Deekman is. And so um, I would like that, and definitely was encouraging that they just said, okay, we're done with Boxberger. Um, I think we get it, and I think most of us i think most of us thought we weren't expecting boxberger to turn into like chapman or something um so it's like okay it was worth a shot and it was 26 innings so it wasn't like it was like they kept putting him in putting him in and you know if it was if it was august 30th and they cut him it's like okay why do we waste all that time um but then you know getting rid of him whatever you want to call it uh by the end of june um Kind of, you know, that at least was an encouraging sign. Um, I was actually looking at Boxberger's stats the other day. He ha- He's going to, f- I don't know if he'll be done pitching, but he has 311 career innings, 0.2 war. Like, I I don't know if I've seen a guy get that many innings and not be that good for his career necessarily. You know what I mean? Um, he He's, I mean, it's happened before, but he's 92nd in war, uh, or he's got the 92nd lowest war. Um, among 300 in- innings of all time, which is random. But it seems like he pitched forever without being too particularly good,
0: right? Well, perhaps that's it the power of the save, you know, because he led the league oh, yeah. in saves a couple years ago. Yeah. And I think, you know, once you're kind of the proven closer, you kind of always get that label. And, you know, yeah. I, wasn't, I was actually pretty on board with the Royals bringing him in uh, before the season just because, you know, he looked like a guy that could at least, you know, he wasn't super old. He'd had a, some track record of – of success uh, even though he you know apparently throwing in the high 80s with not very good command is not a good recipe but um, you know just from the stat side he seemed like he had some evidence to show that he could be at least useful in a, in a season at least half in half a season before the Royals traded him but um, well it just looks like you know he, he just didn't do so well
2: what's weird is that from 2012 to 2019 his his career he is 83rd out of 85 qualified relievers in war. Um, But in his season that he got – he has 41 saves with the Rays. He was worth negative 0.1, and then he had 32 saves with the Diamondbacks last year worth negative 0.3. So he's amassed – you know, caught 70-something saves in his career with negative war seasons, basically. It's just a very, very interesting career.
3: Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the the other thing to to Sean's point is he gives up a lot of home runs because – you know, he's not throwing hard. The, the pitches are, are not, you know, always located where he's wanting to locate them. And he gives up a ton of walks. I mean, that's that'll kill anybody, you know. I mean, and and, and I also agree, you know, the price was right, $2.2 million. Hey, take a shot, you know, see yeah. what you can get. See if you can flip them for a C-level guy at the deadline or, hell, even cash considerations because basically – you know, the way that this roster was looking, you know, back in November, December, they just they, they need, needed arms. They, they still need arms. They, they need guys that they can throw out there and say, you know, please just don't, you know, torch this game here. We just need three outs, please. Can you do that for us? And and they're still searching for that. So, you know, I mean, it, it, I, I'd probably take that chance again. You know, if we were able to, to time travel, go back to, to, you know, October, November, December. You know, worth a shot, but you know, uh, like like Sean said, you know, we've seen enough. Uh, nothing, nothing's burning as as far as any kind of trade movement for him, probably. So, you know, hey, cut bait, walk away, because there are guys that do deserve a shot that uh, that they should be looking at, and I'm sure that they will be pretty soon.
2: What's Moore's history of? Bro- I forget what the Bronx and trade got, whatever the guy with the weird name was that he brought back. Um, but what's his history of not tra- of trading? non-Wade Davis, Kelvin Herrera type guys, like the kind of middling reliever. Can, are there many that he's traded? Did he trade Ron Mahe? Uh, Hold on. Now I want to oh, yeah. Them. I'm just trying to think of who he's traded in the past that have been like, it feels like he's either cut them or kept them. He's never well, really traded them. Or Ky- Kyle I-
0: Farnsworth to the Braves netted us a, a couple of really decent. I think if you want to look at one of the more kind of impressive, like way under the radar trades, Kyle Farnsworth and I think it was Rick Ankiel to the Braves for... Gregor Blanco, Jesse Chavez, and Tim Collins was a oh, yeah. pretty pretty yeah. good heist for and the Farnsworth wasn't super great that year. Uh but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of like middling relievers that um that he's had that, that he's dealt. I think maybe just that the situation hasn't arose other than like I mean Roachim Soria, although he's maybe better yeah. than you're you're talking about. Ron Mahe, I, yeah, a, did Ron A yeah. get traded? I want to say he did, but I, he may have been not good anymore. May, oh, may, may he had. got traded to the Twins. Okay. Uh, uh,
3: you, you know he dealt Aaron Crow, uh, brought back Brian Flynn. Um,
0: All star Aaron
2: Broxton. Crow. Broxton was was Joseph and J C Solber, and that's who that was. I couldn't think of Solberg's name. Um, but anyways, I was just I just was thinking like, man, who has he traded? Reliever-wise, like that, yeah, those are good guys. Aaron Crow is a really good one. I forgot about Aaron Crow. Well, Aaron Crow is a good example, not a good pitcher. Sorry, let me clarify that.
0: <laughs> so, so Boxberger uh, was kind of clogging that 40-man roster spot, and they felt like there was a better use for that. I guess Eric Scoglin, coming off the his 80-game suspension, uh, but there are still some other guys out there like Lucas Duda and Billy Hamilton, who I'm sure you know. At least in Hamilton's case, they may be trying to hope they trade. Uh, but with kind of their, their numbers not being very good and potentially some, you know, more exciting young players like Ryan O'Hearn at first base and Bubba Starling in center field to replace them, Craig, what, what do you think the chances are? You know, the Royals have already cut bait with Chris Owings and Boxberger at this, at already this season. Do you see them maybe saying, OK, that's enough of Lucas Duda and Billy Hamilton? Or is this, is this something where they're going to try to hang on to those guys for the veteran presence uh, to keep these guys on the roster?
3: Yeah. Oh man. I, the Lucas Duda thing has just confounded me from day one and continues to confound me. I mean, last year he's traded for cash considerations to be a left-handed bat to the Braves. Uh, I don't know what you're thinking that you're going to get out of him. Um, other than that, you know, that veteran presence, um, the billy hamilton thing is really intriguing to me because he's hovered so close to his career on-base percentage like the entire season i mean you you know you look him up on any given day he's 290 295 299 and that's who he is uh you know the defense i think is is adequate. Um, you know, I, I guess we've been spoiled, you know, all these years watching Lorenzo Kane track down balls and making it look just effortless. Uh, so, you know, maybe I'm, I'm judging in a little bit of a harsh light uh, you know, as far as that goes. But so the whole Hamilton thing brings up a, in, in my mind, a really interesting question, you know, are they surprised that this is what they're getting? Are they disappointed? Because I don't know how really they could be disappointed, but then also, like you said, Max, they've already released Chris Owings. He was a $3 million free agent signing. They just released Brad Boxberger. He got $2.2 million. You got Billy Hamilton, who was, you know, basically their biggest free agent signing in of the offseason at 5.25. And he also got a mutual option, um, which is included in that 5.25. Uh so you know, are they can can Dayton really do that I, I I mean you know he the the other big free agent signing you know I, I mean Maldonado to replace Salvi sure we get that but you know then you got Jake Diekman uh it's it's like can can you bring in these free agents and then I mean this is this is a pretty spectacular across the board free agent fail right so can you get away with that uh, it's Something that, I mean, has really been, you know, in front of my mind here as, as we've gone through the season and, and as we've seen, you know, what's happening on this team, I, I think that, that Hamilton is a guy that is a tradable asset just because of his speed, because of his defense. You know, I, I think he, he he could fit on a contender. Um, but, you know, I, I just – I find it really curious that, that all of these free agent signings have, have basically across the board been, you know, Not
0: very good. No, I think that's a really good point too, because you know it's easy for fans to say, you know, we should release this guy, we should release that guy, but there is a psychological effect of like when you release a guy three months into his contract, that's kind of a huge admission of you know, oops, we messed up, Uh, my bad on that one, and that's money going down the drain. That's money. David Glass is his boss is paying for a guy not to be on this baseball team, and I'm sure that has to have a little bit of a you know in the back of jade moore's mind uh you know i don't want you know if i give this guy if i give billy hamilton more at bats maybe he can kind of turn it around with a good second half and kind of justify that signing a little bit so i'm sure that's that's a factor at play uh that's i think that's kind of why it's a little bit encouraging that they were able to cut bait on owings and boxberger as quickly as they as they did because i think we you know in in the past we've kind of criticized our royals for not doing that you know arguing it's a it's a sunk cost and and whether or not uh, you know, he, he's on the team or not? You know, you're paying that money, so better to get just the 25 best players, and in this case, 25 best for the long term, than than necessarily keeping the guy around just to justify a contract. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what what they do the next couple weeks. My guess is they try to hang on to Hamilton as much as they can to to look for a trade, and I'll be interested in seeing if there is a trade market. I think everyone kind of assumes there is, uh, but he wasn't. You know, he was on the Reds last year, and the Reds weren't contenders. I don't think at the deadline. And they were not able to move him, which doesn't mean there was an interest. just means that they weren't able to come to agreement on a deal. So we'll see if maybe Dayton Moore can maybe work that angle a little bit better than the Reds did last year. Hey,
2: what do you guys think they're going to do with Homer Bailey, though? Um, I was thinking about that, where he's just on a one-year deal, right? I mm-hmm. mean, and he's—I mean, it's flip him or nothing, effectively. Flip him or uh, you don't even want to go in the offseason with him because he could just go to another team, even if you want to extend him. Uh, so he's got to be traded, right?
3: Yeah, well he's also making the major league minimum. I yeah. mean, I mean for, for, from the Royals. So any team yeah. that picks him up gets him at that pro rated, you know, salary, which is, you know, could be a, a pretty good bargain, even though I mean, you know, I mean he's not a top of the rotation pitcher, but in starts of the imagination. But if you got a guy that can go out and give you five strong for half of the major league minimum, I mean yeah. you know, I, I, I gotta I, I would think Sean that he is like the probably the number one trade target on this roster right, right. now. I mean, does, does that make sense? I, I mean, I, I just – I think that, that he is – I mean, as, as far as a guy that is probably going to be traded, I mean, you know, overlooking like a, a, a Merrifield or a Soler or something like that. But, you know, as, as far as the guys that are actually on the market, Bailey seems like the guy that is the most likely to be moved that would bring back, you know, what, a C-plus level prospect, B-minus, somewhere around there.
2: Yeah, he seems like a guy – he seems like like a Dylan G kind of trade – or exactly that kind of will give us your 12th best prospect or something like that, or give us your guy, in double a, you know, the, a Trevor Oaks kind of guy. I think that's what it is.
0: And I wonder too, like, you know, because of his salary, he'll be more attractive, I think for the the lower revenue teams, like the Rays and the the Brewers. And I wonder if they might be creative with him and use him as a, as a reliever or perhaps an opener, because he does seem to have like, A couple good innings in his starts, and then there's like one or two innings where he doesn't look very good, or the home runs catch up to him. So maybe used in a shorter term role, maybe he's a lot more valuable. And you know these teams also could have different ways they use him. Some of these guys, you know, something they've seen in the film or in the analytics that they feel like they can unleash some more performance from him. So yeah, that would be. It's crazy to me that we're having this conversation about Homer Bailey, considering where he was a couple weeks ago. I just, I kind of laughed when I first started seeing some of these articles. But yeah, I mean, you can't. It's hard to deny now that he. Is a little bit of an asset that's going to have some some I think uh, some interest at the trade deadline.
3: He's second on the team in, in WAR right now, Max. I mean, <laughs> I mean it's Chad Keller and Homer Bailey.
0: Yeah, we right. can't, we can't trade the, the top
3: for almost all
0: of years. Yeah, we can't yeah. trade our most viable pitcher if we want yeah, to make you a win. Yeah, I can't
2: trade. You know,
0: yeah. Well, uh, through Sunday's play, the Royals, you know, they they may have been looking to be in the wild card at one point, but through Sunday's play, <laughs> they're now 29 and 55. That's the second worst record. In all of baseball, and a full four games worse than the Marlins, who are kind of a disaster of an organization and seemingly aren't even trying to win games. And, Craig, you had an article this week that kind of delved deeper into the numbers to to lo- really look at the Royals and say, you know, are they really this bad? Can you kind of summarize your article a little bit and tell us what you concluded about what's the Royals' true talent level this this season?
3: Yeah, so, I mean... I've, I've been intrigued, you know, mainly because they've been outperforming or, or underperforming their, their Pythagorean one loss record and their third order winning percentage as well. Um, they, they're a team that just, you know, it feels like they should be a little bit better than what they have performed at, especially given, you know, kind of the offense that we saw at the beginning of the season um and then you know the pitching of course is, has always struggled but it seems like as we've gone through this year and, and it kind of felt like we saw it last year too a little bit that you know the the hitting would would kind of catch fire the pitching would disappear then the pitching would come around and the bats would go cold and so it just it, it seemed you know that the royals were never able to really put it together and and we've seen that this year their longest winning streak so far's been 3 games uh They've had, I think I I was looking at it earlier today, they've had a two-game winning streak just three times. (laughs) Um, You know, I I mean, so so it's a a team that that is not very good. But, you know, they've been on pace of late for, like, you know, 111 losses, 110 losses, which, of course, is, you know, really, really difficult to do. Uh, Right now, as their record stands, uh, I believe that they're on track for 106 losses better than last year's pace at this time but uh you know still you know not great but this is a team that you know historically in the Dayton Moore era is kind of outperformed and now you know the pendulum has swung the other direction they're uh, they're underperforming but um you know I I think that uh you know when when you look at it all and kind of you know what I was concluding was they're not exactly as bad as what the what the record pre- presents at this moment in time, yet they're still bad. So I'm not really sure that it matters all that much. Uh, you know, I was able to churn to an article out of it, so you know, yay. But um, it it's just it it's 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 a bad team overall. They they're they're not constructed very well. Um, you know, expecting anything, you know. Th- 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 they're a team that was built to flirt with a hundred losses. Just kind of put it that way. So, uh, you know, it 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 was a it's a fun exercise. And, and they are they, they. You know, when I was looking at it, they're way off their their Pythagorean and their third order winning percentage, uh, which third order can be found at baseballperspectus.com on their adjusted team standings. The Royals have been the third best team. As according to third order uh, in the American League Central for most of the year. Um, I think that they have dropped down to fourth uh, over time, but the the Tigers are, are the stragglers in the division. Um, the Tigers also, I believe, have the worst run differential in, in the Central at, at the moment. So, um, you know, there's I, I guess, you know, you could harbor a little bit of hope looking forward that the Royals might be able to, you know, uh, pass the Tigers. Does that mean that the Royals are going to get hot enough to pass them, or does that mean that the tigers are gonna like continue uh, their own you know spiral of losing you know I, I i guess we'll find out over the next three months or whatever but um you know i so it's it, it's an interesting team um you know it, again it, the, the, these royals teams you know post world world championship are just they they are they are strange baseball teams. The way that they're constructed, the way they win, the way they lose, it's its its quite a trip to follow this group.
0: I think if you think about it, too, it's its almost the best-case scenario to have a team that's kind yeah. of actually like their true talent level is you know, bad, but not super bad, but, but to have them be unlucky and to be much worse in the standings. You know, obviously, the worse you are in the standings, the more you're rewarded in the, the following draft. And so to have a team that's, you know, bad but maybe has some glimpses of good players and you know they've had some good play from Hunter Dozier and Alberto Monacy and, and you know you can squint and maybe see a little bit of, uh, of good performances out of Jake Junis and Brad Keller um, some other players maybe in there so Jorge Soler certainly is one dimensional but you can see some home run power from there but to have them perform so badly I think you know at least you, that gives you kind of hope maybe that there are players to build around and they're, they get a nice draft pick next year uh, and so maybe that's kind of like the best way to rebuild. I don't know. Like, I'm trying to find a silver lining to all this. But Sean, what's, what's maybe your best theory on why this team is just so bad and maybe underperforming their run differential by so much at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, even <clears throat> we talked third order and Pythag, but even base runs, which um, I don't, I'm not, I, I forget how third order is calculated. Uh, Pythag is basically just run scored rather loud, but base runs is like, uh context dependent um so it's not just raw runs it's based on like the linear weights and even that has them uh seven runs or seven wins uh worse than they should be so they should be 35 and 48 and that's the most that's the the biggest run differential excuse me win differential um in the majors uh so really rather than being the third worst team they should they're more like the seventh or so worst team um I don't know. I mean, a lot of it's going to get pointed at the offense, and there's a lot of like, oh, the offense is doing pretty well. Um, But really in the current age, like – whatever it is, 4.2 or 4.3 runs a game is not going to cut it um, because the, like, the league average is like 4.5 or so. Um, I think their bullpen definitely is part of it, especially since we what we saw very early on in the season where they had whatever, eight games they were leading and the bullpen blew it. So obviously that doesn't help. So I think that's part of it too. Um, and also, I mean – you think in a world where, you know, Hunter Dozier's hit really well, Montessi's continued some of his success from last year, Merrifield's continued his success, Gordon's done better, um, Solaire's at 20-whatever home runs. You're thinking like, oh, man, um, you know, this team should be at least 10-so wins better than they were last year, but it just isn't. Um, And for whatever reason, it's just an inability to, to sequence runs correctly is effectively what it seems like.
3: There's a couple of things in their like overall stats, st- uh, their overall one loss record. Let's put it that way. You know, one run games that won five that have lost sixteen. Um, you know, so uh, I, to me that points to the bullpen. Uh, but then, you know, according to Baseball Reference, you've got blowouts, which are it's five or more runs. The Royals are eleven and eleven when the margin of victory is five or more runs. Which, you know, I mean, that means that the offense, you know, in in a way can can sequence at times and can hang with teams. Uh, You know, to me, that's really surprising that they're 11 and 11 in these blowout games. Um, Then going back to my article, um, I was just kind of looking at at like numbers uh, or, or the record, you know, when the opponent was scoring five runs, six runs in a game when the opponent scored five or six runs exactly as of like last Tuesday, when I wrote the article, the Royals were three and 24. I I mean, so it's like when they're giving up the runs, they're not, you know, the the bats are, are not happening. It's again, it's just this, it's this weird confluence of just strange baseball that, you know, Hey, they're the, their pitchers are giving up runs, so they've decided to put their own bats in cold storage, It's it, and then vice versa. Hey, they're hitting like gangbusters. They're putting up 11 runs, 10 runs, double digits, and, oh, at the same time, their pitchers are limiting the other team to one or two runs. It's just it's it's – it's been a weird summer of baseball.
2: Yeah, and the bottom half of the order has got to be part of it too just because it's like oh, – absolutely. You get Merrifield on, or you even get uh, Soler. Say he's batting fourth, and then it's just dead weight. After, I mean, it's just like they might as well just be f- four consecutive outs. Um, and that, and it was worse when you had Lopez and Owings and Hamilton and O'Hearn all kind of in the same, and Maldonado all in the same lineup every night. It's just, just such a like an offense suck that um, it, it's um, it's just bizarre to see a, a decent top of the order and an absolutely miserable bottom of the order.
0: Is some, could some of it be that the, the, some of these models, too, are maybe difficult in handling some of these outlier teams that uh, that are just so either so good or so bad? Because we see a very uneven distribution of talent in baseball right now, and you've got some of these, these bad teams are just horrendously bad. The Orioles, you know, they lost 115 games last year. It's, it's hard for a model to predict any team to do that just because yeah. it just almost never happens in baseball. Yeah, Is that a factor I at think- all, you think?
2: i think if you look at i mean often with projected models you've got that kind of normal distribution and you can kind of model some of the tail um risk on both of them but i mean the you run a simulation a thousand times even for an awful team 110 losses probably isn't going to come up uh more than a you know half dozen times uh unless this team is truly a miserably bad team and you would have to be just completely filled with the placement level players to like have a simulation pop up and say, Oh, 110 losses. Um, so yeah, I think, I think some of this stuff is unmodelable. Um, and the Royals and the Orioles and the Marlins are kind of breaking that kind of tail risk idea. And they're hitting that, you know, out of a thousand tries the 15 times it gets that they're they've gone down that path, which is tough to model. It's not the media at
3: all. And, and even when they run the models and they've got these bad teams in there that pop up, you know, if if there was a consistent like, hey, this team, you know, just the Orioles losing 110 games, that's the most likely outcome giving, you know, the, the thousand times that we ran this model, the the from my experience with like the people at baseball Perspectives, when they're running like these preseason Pocota projections, they don't just flip the switch and go, oh yeah, you know, that, that's, that's what we got that, you know, they see something that is skewed unusual and that sets off alarm bells and they, they start, you know, tinkering under the hood, you know, trying to figure out, Hey, what went wrong? Because like Sean said, you know, it's just not normal for a projection system to return you know, a rate of losing, you know, such as that. So, you know, there there's a little bit of a human element there, even when on these, you know, projection models, because if there's anything that is like, you know, completely bonkers when they're running these, it does raise the alarm bells and they go in and they go, well, you know, this can't be right. You know, we need to, you know, kind of figure, figure out what's going on here. You know, because I was thinking back, you know, when we just started this, you know, discussion, Pakoda, at baseball prospectus, and I'm pretty sure, you know, the fan grasp the Zips projections and everything too, you know, I, I don't know that anybody really uh, had a 100-loss team um, just because, you know, like like Sean was saying, it, it just, it's it's rare that, that you have a team that is that bad. And yeah. so these just kind of trend to the safe side, which is, yeah you we know, hey, think uh, said- we're, we're not going to do that.
2: I think you see it at the at the high end, too, because very rarely do you see almost never see a team. And I think I went back a few years with Pocota P- projections. I, it was very rare that they projected a 100 win team. And even though like you could put the Red Sox down for like, all right, they're probably going to flirt with 100 or the Dodgers. Um, they were super conservative in saying, well, probably more like 95 wins when it's like, OK, the Royals won 95, a team. I think most of us would say the current day Dodgers might be better than the 2015 Royals and that team won 95. Um, the Red Sox won 108 and basically lost nobody. Um, and so it's like, ah, uh, I think it's squished kind of on both ends. And I think that's what we're seeing a little bit.
0: Well, the Royals uh, passed the midway point of their season. Uh, and so they'll begin, I guess, the second half, I guess, officially starts after the all-star break. I guess it depends on how you want to find the second half, but as we get into the, get into the second half, what are you guys kind of looking for uh, out of the Royals? What what would kind of constitute a successful second half for the Royals to build upon, maybe for next year? I guess Craig, we'll start with you.
3: Yeah, uh, for me, it's it's about you know the the, the young guys, uh, the continued development of Mondesi. Hopefully, he comes back, you know, full health. You know, uh, just in, and his time on the IL was just kind of a blip. Uh, so he can, you know, play the the majority of the games the rest of the year, and you know, continue to to show what he can do in the field on the bases. He's just he's just a super valuable guy for this team all around. Uh, the continued development of Hunter Dozier, I've been really impressed with him. The ball's just it just jumps off his bat, and and even you know in in like spring training, you're listening to the games on on the webcasts and everything uh, during the day, and 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 you know as they say. The, the the ball just sounded different when the bat connected with it uh on, on for him and and so you know just um, you know hopefully you know continued development there um you know those guys are kind of the building blocks for me you know offensively as, as the future goes um you know i don't know you know what kind of building blocks exist in the in on the pitching side uh, at the major league level at least you know so i mean um you know, so I'll I'll will stay on the on the offensive side of the coin for now, and I'll I'll just I'll go with the continued development of, of two of the building blocks.
0: And Sean, what are you what are you kind of looking for in the second half? I know, I mean, Craig kind of mentions the the, the pitching side at the major league level, not not looking too great, not a lot of future stars. But I think certainly a lot of us will be looking at how guys do in the minor league level. Yeah. and there are a couple of guys that I think a lot of Royals fans are kind of counting on for the future. What else are you looking for in the second half?
2: um i'd like to let's see how monesty comes back he i tweeted out a graph the other day where his plate discipline i think i was O swing his O is outside the zone swing percentage like you can see it it last year it spiked and then it started to drop the second half and it looked really good and then it's kind of came back up and so i really want to watch that to see how he does because as we know the first call it two weeks of the season he had, whatever it was, 500 triples and 30 doubles or whatever it was. Um, and then he's kind of tailed off. So I'd like to see that. Um, I'd like to continue, like Craig said, watch Dozier, um, some of his play discipline. I don't think it's reverted, but I saw him chase a couple high fastballs this past series. I'm like, okay, let's not do that. Um, so that's something to keep an eye out for. Uh, you mentioned the, kind of the guys in the minors, right? Um, we'll see how Singer does. He had a three bad starts and then just had an okay one um, this past one. Um, and then Kowar started tonight, tonight being Sunday, and he was good early on. I think he got hit around it uh, right before he got pulled. So kind of watching those guys, watching um, Daniel Lynch come back, uh, see if Melendez and Prado and Wilmington can kind of turn around now that they've had the break. Um, of course, then Bobby Witt Jr. will watch him as well to see where he goes. He debuts tonight as well. Um, so I kind of that, I think. I think there's a lot going on in the minor leagues that look good for a good second half. And meanwhile, we can – Probably look forward to um, maybe 300 more uh, Artiaga at-bats, too. So
0: keep a... <laughs> well, Artiaga yeah. Ar- is going to be part of the future now.
2: Yeah. He's, you know, whatever. Anybody remember Ramon Torres? Because I remember, I was thinking, like, okay, we could keep Ramon around for just a little bit at least. And now it feels like he's just, I haven't heard anything about him in who knows how long.
0: Yeah, I, I want to say I saw him get picked up in a non-affiliated league, but I'm, I, Oh, yeah,
2: he, he's on the White Sox now. Oh, okay, is he?
0: Okay. Yeah. But he, he yeah. just kind of disappeared off the radar pretty quickly, but yeah, Artiaga does have a pretty good glove and he's, he
2: yeah, some couple he's picks.
0: I mean, it seems like he's got, he could at least maybe hang around for a season or two as a, as a yeah. glove guy off the bench rather than paying, you know, $3 million for Chris. Owings. You know, it's, it seems like that may, that'd be a, maybe a little bit wiser use of a roster spot. Uh, I, I'm kind of looking forward to, it's been hinted at by Flanagan and I think Rustin Dodd and then Sam Mellinger had an article this week about it. But the Royals have talked about using an opener. And I know they've had Josh Stamont and Kyle Zimmer both work as openers for Omaha um, with some kind of mixed results, I guess. Um, but with their, the flux of their rotation right now, uh, if Homer Bailey does get traded, it might present an interesting opportunity to do something like that. And just at least give it a try and see if it works. And if it doesn't, that's fine I mean maybe they don't have the personnel to make it work anyway, but uh you know there aren't there are so many question marks out there right now I think it's probably worth giving it a shot just to see if that can at least give these pitchers uh, a little bit more of a chance uh especially the ones that have command issues like Stamont and, and even Zimmers had some command issues in the minors this year so uh, I'll be kind of looking forward to that and I think also the minor leagues we talked a little bit about the pitchers the guys down in Wilmington are the ones I'm really kind <laughs> of looking at because man they have struggled. Uh, Suley Matthias, who's currently injured and hitting a buck forty-eight, Nick Prado, who sounds like he might be turning around a little bit the last couple of days, we'll see, but he's still hitting well under two hundred with a thirty-five percent strikeout rate, and then M.J. Melendez, who at least is playing good defense, but he's also struggled pretty pretty uh, you know mightily with the bat as well, hitting well under two hundred. So I'm kind of just keeping an eye on those guys to see if they make any kind of progress in the second half. And I know the hitting is not as much of a priority, I guess, as the pitching and development in the minor leagues right now, but I think it's still a big deal to kind of get at least, you know, a couple of those guys close to the big league level and, and, and possibly one of those guys into the major league lineup at some point. So, um, yeah. that's, I, I yeah. think it's, I think it's also
2: pretty palpable that you can feel at least on the, 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 the Twitterverse, um, it seems like everybody's ready for these young guys to be up, and not yeah. not the low minor guys, but I'm talking about the Zimmers, the Stamonts, the Phillips, uh, Starlings. Like I think everybody's like, okay, let's stop messing around with the Boxburgers, the Hamiltons. Like, let's at least get some guys that everybody wants to watch. Um, I mean, you want to bet, you know, dollar for dollar that. Uh, Phillips might be as good as, you know, Billy Hamilton or or Starling might be as good as Billy Hamilton. Um, I think people are ready for that as well. And so that's something I'm looking forward to in the second half. Just this, not that, you know, you know, Starling's not super young. I think he's 26. Um, But, you know, it's time for him over someone like Hamilton. I think that's what everybody else is also looking at. Um, And we got a little bit of that with Lopez when he got called up and they promoted some guys. But it's time to really, you know, get everybody up here. Love Lady as well. Um, it's, you know, I think at least give the people what they want in that capacity.
0: And with some of those guys, too, it's kind of like this is their last opportunity. Like, you know, yeah. they're, they're they're running into their last option here, Brett Phillips right. and Hori Bonifacio. And, uh, you know, certainly Ches- Chesler Cuthbert's at that point now, and he's getting a chance now. And, and he's kind of maybe doing a little bit better than, than perhaps we thought. So some of these guys are kind of at a crossroads of their career. And I kind of said that about Hunter Dozier at the beginning of this year, and he you know he really surprised me and, and put it into another gear. And so, yeah, I kind of like to see what some of these, you know, I don't think these are like stud prospects anymore, but in a lost season like this, um, it's probably a good time to see what these guys have because they're hitting up against a lot of 40 man roster crunches and yeah. they're not going to be able to carry all these guys going into next year. So, you know, it's audition season in my mind. So, yeah, I think we'll yeah. see that in the next couple of weeks.
2: And I think if you've got a guy like Zimmer, who, if you buy the, you know, you only have so many bullets in the arm. Um, I mean, having him throw, 36 innings i mean he threw basically in all of 2016 from 16 to 2017 i mean he probably only threw i'm just gonna eyeball it caught 40 innings and he's already almost at that point now um just this year so it's like you know if not then when um because he's maybe he's got stuff to work on but he's been one of the most kind of disappointing in the sense that he's just perpetually injured. Um, it's like an Alex Reyes kind of type. It's like, man, let's just, he's probably going to get injured soon. At least let's have him be injured here in the major leagues than, you know, in the minors.
0: Don't say that driveline fixed him, So he's never, well, going to hurt
2: okay. again. <laughs> I never want anybody to get hurt, but that's what I'm saying is that, you know, if you buy the bullet in the arm theory and you think, okay, he probably is going to get hurt again. Then let's, I mean, let's give, let's have him up here pitching rather than down there. So sorry. I never want anybody to get hurt. Let me clear, clarify that.
0: Well, finally, Whit Merrifield was named over the weekend as the Royals' lone All-Star representative. Uh, first of all, congratulations to Whit. And and it's his first All-Star rep, and, and certainly he's been a very good player uh, over the last couple of years. But, Craig, is, is was, was he the right choice for the Royals this year?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, just the, the way that the, the rosters have to shake out where you got to pick a guy from every team. So, you know, I mean if you're looking you know just straight up and down the the roster let's let's eliminate the pitchers right away we don't even want to talk about them as potential all-stars um but you know Hunter Dozier's been the best bat in the in in the lineup for the Royals this year uh, he's certainly deserving but you've got Matt Chapman who made the team as a third baseman uh, for Oakland Oakland needs a representative Matt Chapman is awesome. So that makes all sorts of sense. Witt made the team as an outfielder, uh, you know, so he fits into that mix there, um, you know? So, yeah, I, I think uh, the, the way that the roster, you know, shakes out, it, it's, you know, deserved for, for Merrifield and uh, you know, it's, it's too bad for Dozier, but um, you know, things can happen between now and the game. And, and he's probably, you know, I mean, he's a guy that if they lose a bat, you know, uh, between now and, and the game uh, off of that roster, uh, he could be a guy that that could get that call. I got to think that he's right on the edge. Um, but you know, otherwise, yeah, I, I don't have an issue with it.
0: Yeah, I think the position of versatility. I think managers like that, especially in an exhibition game like this, where you're kind of churning guys in and out. Like, it's probably nice to have wit as that security blanket. To, you could play him at second. You could play him in the outfield. You could probably play him at third if you really needed to. So, it probably makes sense that he made the team, Sean. Like. Do you, is, do you think Hunter Dozier could still make this team as an injury replacement or something like that?
2: Or Yeah, I mean, didn't they release the, the reserve rosters? So he's – at this point, he's not on it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I mean, Matt Chapman deserves it um, without a doubt. It's ridiculous that that guy um, finished in the – all. he finished, in, I think, seventh in MVP voting last year and didn't make the all-star team. So he deserves it. Um, and, like, I think Bregman's better than Dozier. Um, but – Merrifield for sure um I that he's the best second baseman in in baseball um at this point at least and I know that's kind of cheating because he hasn't played that much he hasn't played exclusively second base um but um LeMay who's been basically just only this season uh well I take that back he was good in Colorado uh but I think Merrifield is far and away the best second baseman at least um but I mean what are you gonna do he was going up against New York, I mean a, a guy who's hitting well in New York, so that's always going to win,
0: yeah, and my philosophy too with with voting too is to you know I want to recognize the guys that had a good season, but I also maybe give a little more weight to guys yep. that have been there and i I usually look at like guys what their what's their stats over the last calendar year, or at least a year and a half, and, and Whit Merrifield's yep, been that's what i do, yeah, one of the best he's been the best American league second baseman, I believe in the over the last year and a half, and so you know, Tommy Lastella is off to a really great start, but no one had heard of Tommy LaStella three months ago and DJ LeMayu, you're right, was a good good player in Colorado. Um but, you know, he's kinda of taken a different gear this year and with with players like that you always have to wonder, you know, it's is it a, you know, fluky hot start? I still remember like Jack Armstrong started an all star game way back in the nineties for the Reds and then no one ever heard of him again. Like sometimes that happened. I think I'd rather have a guy with a little bit of staying power. I guess Hunter Dozier kind of fits that bill as a guy that has just kind of come out of nowhere and had had a great season, so uh, you know I, I think I would give it to Wit over Hunter if, if it was if the roster spot was kind of between those two.
2: Yeah, but. Yeah, and I mean Bregman's just been so good. I mean, you know, yeah, no shame in know. losing
0: like, running up being a runner up to him.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Well, that will do it for this episode of Royals Review Radio. Uh, I want to thank Craig and Sean for being on the podcast tonight. I also want to mention, in case you haven't noticed, you should be getting the Royals Farm Report podcast on this feed as well. They do an excellent job covering the Royals minor leagues, so do check that out. Craig, thanks so much for being on the show tonight, man. I appreciate it, and we'll have to have you on again sometime.
3: Yeah, thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Always fun.
0: And, Sean, uh, I know you'll be keeping a close eye on the minor leagues. Um, yeah. Anything, uh, anything particular you're working on right now?
2: Um, Nothing other than Bobby Witt Jr. just had his first official plate appearance in and- Grounded out, uh, but he... Oh, or
0: can we call him a bust yet then? I mean, come yeah. on.
2: <laughs> but it was a fielder's choice, and he stole second base on an Aaron, and then took third on an Aaron throw. So
0: well, speed. That's, that's, speed a kind of, and, that's a kind of gritty uh, play I like yep. to see out of that game. All exactly. right.
2: Exactly. So, so he's already ready, yeah.
0: All right. Well, for Craig and Sean and for everyone on Royals Review, thanks so much for reading and tuning in, and we'll talk to you next
3: time.